scripture this morning comes from Matthew chapter 2. Very popular story around this time of year. If you will please turn to Matthew chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. And once you have found the scripture, if you could please rise to the reading the word of God. Matthew chapter 2. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time when the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The word of God to the people of God. We come across this story every time about this year. The story of the Magi. These are remarkably fascinating characters. I mean, truth be told, I, I find them a little mysterious. They kind of come out of nowhere and recede back into uh, the stories of history. They don't show up again in the Gospel accounts. And there's a lot of uh, mystery that sort of surrounds these characters. We could say they're a little bit misunderstood. Perhaps some of the more misunderstood characters in the birth story of Jesus. We sometimes refer to them as wise men. But I think our, the popular misperceptions we sometimes have of these characters really comes from sort of the popular depictions we have of the nativity. We've all seen the pictures of the baby Jesus in uh, that anachronistic barn, right? And they have uh, Jesus kneeling, or uh, Joseph kneeling down, a loving Mary uh, watching over him, the shepherds on one side, the magi on the other. We've all seen the pictures, right? 
And, and the pictures kind of bring together various elements in the story. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is one misperception. The Magi weren't necessarily there when the shepherds were there. You know, when uh, the Magi show up, actually, Jesus was likely a toddler, probably about two years old or so. And we get that because when uh, Herod speaks to the Magi, and he says, he, he tries to find out when that star appeared. And once he finds out when the star appeared, he uses that information because Herod has a plan to try and eliminate any potential rivals to his power. And in the story right after this, we get what's called the slaughter of the innocents, where Herod kills all the children, two and under in Bethlehem. This tragic story that tells us at this time, Jesus was likely about to. You know, another misperception we sometimes have about these wise men, the number of wise men that show up. We've all seen the pictures, right? How many show up in the pictures? We always get three in the pictures, right? But how many does the text say are there? Doesn't tell us, does it? I, I always tell my students in class, the only three kings you need to know, B.B. King, Freddie King, and Albert King. Those are the three kings you need to know to do well in this class. It doesn't tell us how, how many show up. You know, and in Western tradition, we tend to depict it as three kings or three wise men because in art, they're always holding three gifts. And so it kind of makes sense to have three. Each one holds one. But you know, in Eastern Orthodoxy, so if you were in uh, the Greek Eastern Orthodox Church, all their paintings, or a lot of their paintings, actually have 12. I mean, that sounds like a good biblical number, right? It makes sense. You know, but a lot of scholars think that... Uh, when the Magi showed up, they were probably a lot more than three. And likely a lot more than twelve. Because when they showed up, the city noticed. I mean, Jerusalem was kind of a popular city in that day. People came, people went, uh, especially for pilgrimages and so on. People came through the city all the time. But when the Magi showed up, everybody noticed. When the Magi showed up, Herod noticed. And the text says that when the Magi showed up, Herod and all Jerusalem with him were concerned. So a lot of people think that uh, this was probably a rather large caravan to catch the attention of the acting king of the Jews at the time. In fact, if you were traveling in the ancient world, you tended to travel in large caravans. It uh, sort of dissuaded thieves along the road from jumping out and surprising. Larger the caravan, the safer it was to travel. Yes, there are many misperceptions about the Magi. They're just these mysterious characters in the story. And we get the Magi pop up uh, occasionally throughout history. There are references to them here and there. Uh, a few Greek historians reference Magi. We get some Greek sources that present them as interpreters of dreams, omens, signs. We get a few sources that present them as reading the stars, like astrologers. Some even present them as uh, advisors in royal courts. They would advise kings out in the east. But by the time we get to them in the first century, around the time when this story shows up, they were largely associated with magic. Sorcerers, magicians. And the truth is, in the Greek world, there were some people who were rather suspicious of them. You know, you get suspicious of people who claim they can do magic. They're probably just doing some tricks or something. Maybe deceivers. And I just find it really fascinating 
that here, in this birth story of Jesus, it's people from a foreign land who follow a faith that we would anachronistically call pagan, who would probably be widely regarded as suspicious deceivers. People who were outlawed according to Torah because they read the stars. People who would be ostracized. They are the first ones to show up and kneel down before King Jesus. I just find that remarkably fascinating. It's the people we would least expect that are the first to kneel before Jesus. There are many stories of the Magi throughout history. And oftentimes they are known for recognizing kings. There are stories of the Magi recognizing Alexander the Great before he conquers. Stories of the Magi recognizing the rise and fall of kingdoms. The rise and fall of rulers. And so here we get them in our story. Showing up to kneel before King Jesus. And so they show up in Jerusalem. The capital of the Jewish people. In search of the Jewish king. The text doesn't really tell us how they come before King Herod. But at some point they end up in a conversation with Herod. A few things that we should probably know about Herod. Herod, uh, well Herod more than anything, he just wanted to be king. And more specifically, he didn't just want to be king, he wanted to be king of the Jews. You see, the problem is the Jews didn't want him as king, the Jews didn't even want him to be considered Jewish. They really did not like him. You know, in in the musical interpretation of history, he's the one who woke up every morning singing that Lion King song, I Just Can't Wait to Be King. That was his life's ambition. So much so, that when an opportunity arose for him to become king, he went to Rome. He got an army, and he marched on Jerusalem to conquer it. You know it's a problem when you have to conquer your own people. Yeah. And so, when Herod came to power, the Jewish people, well, they were not exactly fond of him. When you use a foreign power, a foreign army to conquer, you know, it tends to breed resentment. So, people were not a fan of Herod. And he knew it. Herod just wanted the people to be loyal to him. And so once he came to power, he tried to buy their loyalty. He decided he would build them a brand new temple. After all, the temple is rather important in Judaism, isn't it? Yes, and at the time, the temple, well, it was kind of small. It was poor. It really didn't have the majesty and the splendor that the God of heaven and earth deserved. And so when Herod became king, well, Herod was also a great And so he comes to all the priests and he says, I will build a temple worthy of this God. And so he he levels the old temple, builds up this new temple, makes it one of the most beautiful temples in the known world. And as the stories go, when he finally brings the priests in, he opens the doors to this beautiful new temple and the priests walk in and they're just amazed at what he's built for for their God. And they look around and they marvel at how beautiful everything is and then they lock the door behind them and wouldn't let them in. True. <laughs> they would not let him in the temple that he built. After all, they said, you're more Roman than you are Jewish. You marched on us with the Roman uh, army. You've got a Roman ancestry back there somewhere. They really didn't consider him Jewish. Herod was furious. Herod was so angry that uh, he built his palace 
right next to the temple and made it just a little bit bigger. Yeah, he... Yeah. Just so he could look down over the walls and see what they were doing inside. Herod had some tensions with the people. And he was constantly concerned that someone was going to challenge his claim to power over Jerusalem. He, he had some, we could say, some insecurities over his kingship. In fact, uh, these insecurities tended to breed a paranoia a little bit with him. Um, he was known for killing family members who he suspected of being treacherous. Uh, actually, I think he ended up killing, he killed two brother-in-laws. Uh, he killed his wife. He really loved his wife. But he killed most of her family and then killed her. It was a very complicated relationship. But with every single one, it was because he just suspected that they were going to challenge his power. In fact, when Herod came to power in Jerusalem, he gathered all the Sanhedrin together. The Sanhedrin were the ruling elders of uh, the Jewish people. They were sort of the, the community of wisdom who had guided the Jewish people through tumultuous political transitions through really hard times. The Sanhedrin consisted of some Sadducees, it consisted of Pharisees. These were the respected elders of the community. And he gathered them all together, and he killed half plus one. Just to show that his word would always be more powerful than their majority. Herod had some real insecurities about his rule. And he tended to lash out in violence to try and reinforce his power. And so you see, my friends, when Jesus show, well, I should say, when the Magi show up looking for the king of the Jews, we have to understand that this is a rather tense exchange between them and King Herod. Because King Herod did not like people rivaling his claims to power. King Herod did not like people rivaling his claims to the kingship. And we have to understand that as soon as the Magi show up, now Herod realizes that somewhere... Out there is an individual who will challenge the status quo. Somewhere out there now is an individual who will challenge his claim to power. We often send out Christmas cards around this time of year. Christmas cards have those uh, images of snow-laden towns. You all know what I'm talking about, right? Those beautiful Christmas cards. The silent nights, those tranquil scenes. There are some that have... Uh, Images of a lion laying down the land. Have y'all seen that? Or sometimes the peaceful manger scene. And what we have to understand is even though we associate this season with a season of peace, when Jesus entered the world, nothing could have been farther from the truth. Because as soon as Jesus enters this world, there is a challenge. Who are people going to bow down to? Or we could say it this way. Before who? Will we kneel? There is a choice to be made. Whose kingship are we going to recognize? You see, my friends, I imagine that when they stood before King Herod and asked, where is this king? That Herod initially thought to himself, well, the king of the Jews, I am right here. And then they had to explain to him, no, no, the one that was just born. And that's when Herod realized that if another king is going to rise, who is going to have to fall? That's when Herod realized that his claims to power over people were being threatened. After all, over Jerusalem, there can only be one king. Before whom will we bow? What king will we recognize?
And Matthew emphasizes this in the story. Matthew wants us to see the competing claims of kingship between Herod, the ruler of this world, and Jesus, the ruler who just entered from beyond it. Read the story and look at how many times Matthew mentions kingship. Listen to this here. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea, during the time King Herod, Magi from the east, came to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the one who has been born? The what? The king of the Jews. When King Herod heard this, do you hear how often Matthew's repeating that word, king? He was disturbed. Verse 4. When he called together the people's chief priests, the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was going to be born. The Messiah. The Hebrew word for the one who is anointed to be king. All throughout this story, there are competing claims of kingship. You have the Magi standing before one who claims to be a king, asking, no, where is this real king? They replied, in Bethlehem of Judea, and they quote this famous passage, but you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That language of rule, shepherding, images of kingship. All throughout this story, there's a tension of kingship. There are two kings in this story. And the question becomes, before whom will we kneel? Before whom will we bow down? You see, my friends, from Christ's first moments on this earth, he already challenges the status quo. He already challenges claims of authority. And so, my friends, when we Christians approach the nativity, when we approach this story, year after year, the story of Christ's birth, the story of the Messiah entering into this world, in many ways, we find ourselves standing alongside the Magi. And we have to make a decision. What king do we recognize? Before whom will we kneel? Before whom will we bow down? Whose authority will we accept? Because we often come into this season having lived under many authorities in this world. We often come into this season having lived in a world where many power structures demand that we kneel down. That we bow down to get by. So whose power do we really accept? The earthly king who uses earthly tactics to rule over an earthly kingdom? Or do we kneel down before the one who proclaims that his kingdom is not of this world? Turn and tell someone it's King Jesus. You see, we may not live in the days of Herod, but we still live in the midst of of earthly kingdoms, do we not? My friends, do we bow down before the king who promises to build us a shiny new earthly temple? Or before the king who says, you will not worship on this mountain or that mountain, but true worshipers of God. We'll worship in spirit and in truth. Turn and tell someone it's King Jesus. Do we bow down before kings or rulers who try to win our loyalty by promising to restore the earthly cultural prominence of our faith? Or do we bow down before the one who calls us out of this world? Turn and tell someone it's King Jesus. Do we bow down before the king who will place his own political expectancy above the lives of children? 
Do we bow down to a social order that is more willing to invest in incarceration than education? Or do we bow down before the one who will say, let the children come? Yeah. Turn and tell someone it's King Jesus. You see, my friends, we may live centuries after Herod, but the world still turns all the same. And we still live in a world where many power structures demand our loyalty, demand that we bow down, want to tell us that if you want to get by, if you want to be happy in this world, just kneel before the materialism. If you want to be happy in this world, just kneel before the consumerism. If you want to be happy in this world, just kneel before this life philosophy or that life philosophy. And the question we have to ask ourselves when we enter into this season is what king will we kneel before? Turn and tell someone it's King Jesus. In fact, my friends, early Christians believed this so strongly in the Roman Empire, they would not even call Caesar an emperor. Early Christians would not even use the word king for the Caesar of the Roman Empire. Because as far as they were concerned, there is only one king that they have to recognize, and it's King who? King Jesus. You see, my friends, one of the reasons why so many Christians got into trouble is they were considered disloyal. They would come in before Roman consulates, but not recognize a Roman authority. Because there is only one authority that they recognize, the authority of who? King Jesus. You see, my friends, as far as they were concerned, the empires of this world come and go. The kings of this world may come and go. Caesar may rule over this world, but we as Christians are not of this world, now are we? No, my friends, as that famous hymn proclaims, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh, Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then, Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. My friends, when we are called into Christianity, there is only one king that we recognize. Amen. Amen. Can I tell you an old rabbinic story? It's a famous story I came across by Rabbi Yosef Isaac Schneerson. He was a uh, Russian-born Hasidic rabbi uh, who escaped uh, the Soviet Union, eventually came to New York. He escaped the horrors of anti-Semitism. One of the reasons why this story captures me is he tells a story about when he was a child. Uh, it was right about 1900 or so. And he used to travel with his father. And whenever his father would take him to travel, his father would take him to uh, houses of learning or houses of worship where he could learn from Jewish leaders in different countries or Jewish leaders who would gather together. And he tells this story about one time when he was in Vienna and his father takes him to a small house where a group of Polish Jewish teachers had gathered. And the reason why this story is so precious is because, as many of you know, 90% of Poland's Jewish population was killed during the Holocaust. 90%. All their stories, their teachings, their culture, almost entirely annihilated. And what we have in this story from this traveler 
is one great bit of wisdom that they can pass on. They tell the story about Rabbi Nina, who was a famous teacher of uh, Hasidic Judaism. He was a student of Rabbi Baal Shem Tov. And I realized I just started nerding out there. I'm sorry. I'll get back to the story here. But the thing about Rabbi Mir is he, he was kind of considered almost like a miracle worker. He was, uh, the, the best way to say it, it was almost like holiness and righteousness just radiated off of him. Everywhere he went, it was as if just the troubles of this world could not touch him. And they used to tell a story about how he would travel outside of his town. There was this little path he would travel. And they would go to sort of a, a ritual washing house where uh, the Jewish teachers would ritually wash themselves before reading Torah or before engaging in the holy acts of their faith. And this little path would wind up a hill. And the problem is that in Poland, the, the hills sometimes would freeze over. And it could be a little slippery trying to get up those hills. We've all tried to walk on ice, right? Yes, be very careful doing that. And so whenever the ground froze over, all of the Jewish men of the town would, would travel around. They wouldn't take that path because they would slip and get hurt. Except for one, Rabbi Nehemiah. Rain or shine, snow or sleet or hail, he always took the same path up to the house. And one day after it snowed, there was ice on the path. He walked up, he just glided right up. And they say that one young man decided, a young man who didn't believe in miracles, did not believe that the hand of God moved among the people today, decided he would walk up as well. Because he said, after all, if Rabbi Mir could do it, I can do it. And the young man walked up, slipped, fell down. Uh, they took him back inside. And they say later that day, the young man asked Rabbi Mir, and said, how is it that you can walk up these slippery paths and never fall? But any of the rest of us, we walk on that isolated path, we slip and slide all over the place. How is it? <coughs> Rabbi Meir responded with this. If a man is bound up on high, he will not fall here below. If you are bound up on high, you will not fall here below. And you see, my friends... We as humans have the remarkable ability to place our hope in all the wrong things from here below. We as people have this remarkable ability to constantly be binding ourselves to the things of this world. And putting our hope in the things that are down here below. And when we do that, we will always fall. Because no matter how good the things of this world may be, they will always let us down. Sometimes we place our hope in the promises of leaders or politicians who promise that they can build us a better future. And you know what, my friends? No matter how good-hearted or well-intentioned they may be, maybe, they will always let us down at some points. Sometimes we place our hope in the church that it can absolve us of our sins or free us from our guilt. And no matter how much charity the church may do in this world, it will always let us down at some points. Sometimes we place our hope in that woman or that man to heal us of the wounds of our past relationships. No matter how good-hearted they may be, they'll always let us down at some points. Sometimes we place our hope in material possessions to cover over our personal insecurities, 
Sometimes we place our hope in our jobs, our bank accounts, retirement savings, children, grandchildren, the list goes on. So many things that we turn to in this world. So many things that we are willing to kneel before, to bind ourselves to, just to give us hope. Whenever we plant our feet in this world, no matter how solid the foundation may be, we will eventually slip. Because this is a messy world. There are many slippery paths that we will travel down. The question is, will we seek to bind ourselves from above? Or will we seek to bind ourselves from below? The question is, will we kneel before something of this world? Or will we kneel before King you see, my friends, it's easy to say, I will kneel before King Jesus when I speak in the future tense. You know it's a lot harder to answer? Who have I been kneeling to? Because sometimes my lips proclaim one thing, but my bank account says another. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes my lips proclaim one thing, but if you look at my calendar day in and day out, it says I willingly back to something. Sometimes my lips say I'll bow before King Jesus. But in actuality, when I stand before the altar and it's just me and God, I realize I've been bowing to a lot. I've been looking to a lot of things. Willing to give my life to them. To give my loyalty to them. Asking them, just give me hope for a better tomorrow. Give me hope that I'll be happy tomorrow. Give me hope that I'll be full tomorrow. Are we going to bow before this world? Or do we bow before King Jesus? The doors of the church are open. Hello, my name is Lorenz, and I am a choir singer here at One Fellowship Church in Waco, Texas. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about our congregation online at onefellowshipumc.org. You can also like us on Facebook in order to stay up to date with the latest events and activities taking place in our community. Please feel free to share this message and others on social media so that more people can hear about what God is doing here at One Fellowship Church. Thank you and God bless.